everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a weekly true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks for joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Today, we're going to discuss the case of Alvin and Judith Neely, an American couple responsible for the torture murders of two young girls in 1982. The Neelys have often been referred to as serial killers, but that kind of confused me at first because I always thought that you weren't a serial killer until you had three or more victims, and as I said already, the Neelys only had two. So I turned to my best friend as of late, Google, and according to the FBI, a serial killer is someone who commits at least three murders over more than a month with an emotional cooling off period in between. However, according to the National Institute of Justice, being a serial killer involves committing two or more murders with a psychological motive and sadistic sexual overtones. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That was a mouthful to say. Yeah, I I thought if you're a serial killer, you just like to kill people and there's no like... No, there are apparently prerequisites. Stipulations. (laughs) Apparently there are. But according to those two definitions... It seems to me that the Neelys fit more closely under the second definition of serial killer provided by the National Institute of Justice. Although they do fit that definition, I sort of lean more towards them being a spree killer or spree killers in this situation. And according to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, they define a spree killing as killings at two or more locations with almost no time break between the murders. So based on that, I would think that they're more spree killers than serial killers. But you'll have to make that judgment for yourself once I lay out all the facts of the case in today's episode. So without further ado, let's dive right in. And if you've listened to our other episodes, you already know that a lot of the time we start off with a little bit of background. So that's kind of where we're going to jump off from today. Alvin Howard Neely Jr. was born on July 15th, 1953 in Georgia. And there isn't really too much out there on his childhood, but from everything I could gather, his early life was pretty normal and uneventful. Alvin was loved by his family, liked by both his fellow students and teachers, but even though he had a really great life, he turned to a life of petty crime pretty early on, starting with being a car thief as a teenager and eventually graduating to small cons writing bad checks, skipping out on rent, robbing convenience stores, etc. Anything to keep himself afloat financially. Sounds like another Derek Todd Lee in the making. Right, started out pretty early. Judith Neely was born Judith Ann Adams on June 7th, 1964 in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And I'm likely saying that wrong, so I apologize to anybody from there. Um, Judith's early life was pretty typical of girls her age in the southern working class. She was a good student, but when she was nine years old, her father, while drunk, died in a motorcycle crash. This is why you don't drink and drive, kids. Is this the case of daddy issues? Uh, I don't know. It could be. Well, we might revisit that later. Um... So once Judith's father passed away, her life sort of started to take, to take a downward turn. And Judith's mother often spent her nights 
um, communicating with men over her CB radio and inviting them over for sexual encounters, all while Judith was home. Mm-mm. They had a time and place for that, and not why you got a child with you. Right. And these behaviors did not go unnoticed by a very impressionable Judith, who was once an 8th grade cheerleader and a member of the 4-H club and the future homemakers of America. So, like, other than her father dying at a, like, at a young age for her, like, she seemed to have a lot going for her, I guess. Like, right. You know, and besides, you know, her mom having randos yeah, over right. all the time. But, like, I mean, she was involved in the community mm-hmm. and... Right, she was in extracurricular activities. Which um, isn't normal in cases of this right, nature. Right, you would think most of those people would be loners and... Yeah. Or, like, burnouts right. or... Right. Um, so, during one of Judith's mother's encounters, when she was 15, she met Alvin Neely, who was 11 years older than her. Uh, red flag. Right. And Alvin has stated that it was love at first sight with Judith. Wait, wait. Hold up. I think I missed something here. So, like, Judith's mother links up with Alvin. Is that his name? Alvin? Alvin, yes. So, Judith and um, Judith's mother and Alvin were... I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Everything that I read just said during one of her encounters, that's when she met him. So, I'm not sure so if he was there for her. He, right. For her like, mom. But, like, if his, the mother would have never met him, it would there, that encounter would have never happened Probably between not. Judith and him. Right. Probably not. Okie dokie now. And... If Judith was 15, that would have made Alvin 26. 26. That's disgusting. What kind of grown man says they're attracted to a 15-year-old? Unless you're a pedophile. A sick individual. Wait, did you say he was a teacher? Or a student? You said no. his fellow student. No, I teacher. said he when he was in school. Oh, okay. He, so he's not, he was he, liked he, by his fellow No, no, no. Oh, okay. Was, it's not a Mary Kay Letourneau okay. kind of no, thing. Okay. No. Um... So, back to the story. Um, At the time, Alvin Neely was already married with three children. And a few weeks after meeting, Judith ran away with Alvin. What? Yes. At 15, ran away with a 26-year-old. Is that kidnapping? No. Nope. She willingly went. But she doesn't. Right. child. I don't. Right. I guess her mom didn't report it. I don't really know. So... Um, they ran away together. They were living in motel rooms in their car. Um, so Judith soon became pregnant with twins by the time she was 16. Oh my goodness. Which is also when Alvin divorced his first wife so that he could marry Judith. What his first wife that he had three children with. So can, can you even imagine? So essentially he had three children. Now he's dating a child. And he's had two more on the way. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah, can, can you even imagine, you know, you, your husband, with whom you share three children, just leaves you for a 16-year-old? Can somebody put out a bolo on this dude? <laughs> right. Stranger danger. On July 14th, 1980, a day before Alvin's 27th birthday, Alvin and 16-year-old Judith were married in Georgia. That, that mm. baffles me. Yeah. Because Judith was 16, wouldn't she have needed parental consent, consent to get married? Like a signature? I mean, last time I checked, Georgia is not in Mexico. <laughs> right. I mean, so. 
I mean, I would hope she would have needed a signature, but maybe not. I don't know. The 80s were a different time. Uh, true. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, My 16-year-old daughter is not going to be marrying uh, a 27-year-old man. No. It's so, disgusting. It really is. So the Neelys lived in several motels and ended up supporting themselves by robbing general stores as they moved what? from town to town. Y'all, I'm laughing because Amanda just made a face. <laughs> you can't see it, but... Um, so they were robbing general stores as they were moving from town to town, which eventually landed both of them in jail. And as a couple, they first came to the attention of the Rome, Georgia police um, in the fall of 1980 when Judith robbed someone at gunpoint. And she was still 16. Yes. And pregnant. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about the twins. Right. So This is so much. It's a comprehensive. It's a lot. It's so it much. is a lot. So... The next day, Judith was arrested for trying to use a stolen check, and she was placed in the Youth Detention Center, which I'm going to refer to as the YDC from here on out, so just keep that in mind. Cool, cool. And that is also in Rome, Georgia. And as I said, she was nine months pregnant mm-hmm. at the time that she was arrested. She actually gave birth to her twins at the YDC two days after the robbery Did occurred. Did you... Maybe she thought she was going to get a slap on the wrist because she's... A pregnant teenager? Like, I don't know. Pregnant with twins, robbing somebody at gunpoint. gunpoint. Jesus. Right. Do you have no, like, like, no... I I could totally support a hustle, but that is not the kind of hustling (laughs) you need to be doing. Right. Um, so custody of the newborn twins was granted to Alvin's mother, and their third child was born while she was in jail, Awaiting trial for the murder of one of the young victims that we're going to talk about today. Oh, I was like, wait, how'd she get pregnant in jail? Okay. No, no, no. No, I kind of skipped around, but yeah. Um, Her three children were all born, basically, while she was in jail. Right. Alvin was also arrested for armed robbery, the same one that we've been talking about. Um, But he was arrested for driving her to and from the scene. Um, And he was convicted and sentenced to up to five years in jail. Wait, so like, at this point, is it... Her idea? Is it his idea? Is it um, contributing to the delinquents of a juvenile? I, like, I don't know. That's like, a good who's question. that lunatic? Who's or is it, a, is it a, a joint effort? I don't want to give too much away, but okay. we'll, Dang, um, jumping ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, maybe not in this with this crime, but eventually we will talk about who they think was the mastermind and who was pulling all the strings. Dun, so dun, we'll get dun. there. Right. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, so... Like I said, Alvin was convicted and sentenced to up to five years in jail. And he was 26 years old, so he's charged as an adult. You know, she's a minor. Yeah. Um, So during their separation, Judith wrote letters to Alvin saying that she detested the YDC staff and that people were mistreating her. And she made some really serious allegations saying that she was being raped, that she was suffering sexual abuse, that staff would not let her write to him. And... But from everything that I've read, though, none of these claims have ever been substantiated. So I mean, I, I don't know if she was just trying to manipulate him because, you know, he began to make promises of revenge to Judith Wait, once she gets out. Wait, to the staff and, like, correctional officers? Against, and, yeah, I mean, yeah. that he's going to, you know, they're going to get revenge on the staff because of everything that they've done to her. Oh. So I don't know if... Like I said, if nothing's ever been substantiated, um, so I don't 
know how much truth there was to that. Maybe she was just trying to manipulate him. I mean, in my own opinion, I would not trust a thing she does or says at this point. Right. So, Judith was released in November of 1981, and Alvin was released the following April in 1982, and the couple resumed their life of crime together once they were reunited. Which, so, no lesson learned. No. Clearly, clearly they did not. No, that was just a release that was like pre-trial, right? That wasn't... This was from the robbery that we talked about. Yeah, so clearly their time behind bars did not reform either of them. So apparently the couple drove around in two cars, you know, separate vehicles, communicating via CB radio. Was that a common thing to have, like, in the 80s? I don't really know. But it kind of makes me go back to Judith witnessing her mom. Her mom, like, she learned that was learned behavior. Yeah, talking to random men using the CB radio. So I wonder if that's why she chose to use that. I don't know. I tend to think it might be. Interesting. Don't really know. But his, you know, code name was Knight Rider, and hers was Lady Sundown. Okay. <laughs> you can call me Nighthawk. <laughs> Sorry, guys, that's a stepbrother's reference. <laughs> so, in the fall of 1982, the authorities in Georgia and Alabama were on the hunt for Judith Neely, who was 18, and her husband, Alvin, who was 29. At this point, the Neelys were suspects in multiple crimes, including arson and murder. They just kind of like to dip their toes in every little crime. They don't really. Right. So we're going to start talking about, you know, their victims. Um, Starting off with 13-year-old Lisa Ann Milliken. 13? Mm Mm-hmm. When I said young victims, I was not exaggerating. Yeah. 13-year-old Lisa Ann Milliken had a rough life and was removed from the care of her parents in Lafayette, Georgia, which I'm saying Lafayette like we say it in Louisiana, so yeah, sorry. I, that's probably <laughs> sorry, not, not sorry. That's probably not right. But so she was removed from their the care of her parents due to allegations of neglect and abuse. And according to court records, Lisa had lived in poverty and was sexually abused by her father. Her her own father. That's really sad. That's so sad. Um, which is what likely prompted her removal from the family's home. Um and Lisa had already been removed from her home four times in her life before she entered a group home. Four times? Like 13? By the time she was 13, right. That's so sad. So, on September 25th, 1982, Lisa was at Riverbend Mall in Rome, Georgia, with several girl, girls and her house parent from the Ethel Harpst home in Cedartown, Georgia, which is a home for neglected children. Um, and you know she was at the mall when she went missing so after the police's search of the shopping mall turned up empty they interviewed her parents and several of the home's residents and employees but no one knew where lisa was or had a clue as to what her whereabouts might be so due to the circumstances of lisa's life and the fact that she was placed in a girl's home the police basically automatically assumed that she was a runaway Oh, that's so mad. That makes me so mad. Like, And that does happen a it lot. It happens a lot. Right. Like, if right. your child has a history of running away, right. like, and they, like, you they're know, basically the boy gonna, who cried wolf, you know. They're basically not going to take anything yes. seriously. Like, if, if when they something missing, serious does happen, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. like, they write you off. Right. It's really sad. Three days after Lisa had gone missing, police in Rome, Georgia, and this is crazy, received an anonymous call from a young woman telling police 
that if they went to Little River Canyon in Fort Payne, Alabama, and just across the Little River Canyon Bridge in the National Park, that if you looked over the edge of the canyon where there's a power line going across it, that they would find Lisa's body. That's really specific. Right. So Rome police immediately contacted authorities in Alabama, and officers were dispatched to the area to search for a body. However, they were unable to find anything, and they assumed that the call was a prank. An oddly specific prank, but a prank. It's a terrible prank. Right. But the next day, the DeKalb County, Alabama police received a call from the same woman stating that if they go to the canyon where the power lines cross, they will find a body with a bullet in it. So, like, they, they, they like, added another little detail. Right, right. When they didn't, I guess she called again. The woman called again when they realized, when she realized, oh, they, I haven't seen a body, or I haven't seen a news report that they found a body. So right. she called again. Again, we talked about this in a previous episode i can't remember which one i think that the felt the tafelski family mm-hmm. we talked about people inserting themselves oh, yes, yes, yes. into into the case so this seems like that to me um so again police searched but didn't find anything until alabama state trooper tommy brock he had parked his unit a little bit further than the other officers and as he was walking back to his unit he, you know, they were leaving. He hadn't found anything. But so he was out there actively looking. Yes, he was helping with the search, but he didn't find anything, so he was leaving. So as he's walking back to his car, he noticed a tree on the edge of the canyon, and he just decided, hey, let me, let me, you know, one take less, one more yeah. look. So Trooper Brock leaned on the tree with his right hand and shined his flashlight into the canyon with his left hand. And when he did this, he saw the back of a young girl. So like, was it a drop-off he was looking down? Yes, it's like a canyon. Okay. It's, I forget how many feet it is, but it's a big drop. So they were, like, looking on the, like, the flat surface. They weren't looking down into the... Well, they were looking over the canyon, but the problem was that when she fell, she kind of, I guess her body was hidden, because it was like, you know, you're, they were looking straight down. They weren't looking, like, like under, leaning, leaning yeah. over, yeah. like, looking under, because, like, I guess her body was kind of hidden, you know... They were so just it, looking I might not be yeah. explaining that right, but hopefully it, you it, guys it's can... It's like drawing a picture for me. So. Yeah, hopefully you know, you, you're kind of understanding what I'm saying. So on September 29th, 1982, four days after she went missing, Lisa Ann Milliken's body was found about 35 miles from the shopping center where she had last been seen. And about 50 feet from her body, police found a white hand towel which had two or three hypodermic syringes wrapped up in it. And there was also a pair of bloody blue jeans in that general area. Was she wearing pants? I'm not sure. Um, So an autopsy was performed on her body, and the syringes and jeans were sent to the forensics lab for analysis. And while waiting on the results from the testing, Georgia and Alabama officers joined forces to try to solve the murder of Lisa. And eventually, police did zero in on Judith and Alvin Neely. So did they ever elaborate, like, with the syringes and stuff? Okay. Yeah. I'm just like... (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, So that was at the September 29th in 1982. So on October 1st, 1982, results came back from evidence found near Lisa's body. The blood on the jeans belonged to Lisa, but the jeans were too large to be hers. So police assumed that they belonged to her killer. The syringes contained sodium hydroxide and hypochlorite. 
the main ingredients in liquid drain cleaner. No. Yes. This is rough. Lisa's autopsy showed that she had been tortured prior to her murder by the injection of liquid drain cleaner into her neck, her arms, and into both buttocks. This is a 13-year-old girl. The autopsy also revealed that Lisa had been sexually assaulted, but lab techs did not locate any other forensic evidence. Like, as far as DNA of her killer right. or anything? Right, so they, they weren't sure at that point. Like, what is drain killer supposed to do, like, to her? I don't really know. I don't really know. And I'm going to get a little bit more into that later. Um, so, two days after that, those results came back, on October 3rd, 1982, John Hancock, 26, and his fiancée, Janice K. Chapman, 22, were walking home after visiting their family. Um, I'm not sure if it was his family or her family, just family. Um, Judith lured Janice into her car by saying she was new in town and friendless, and she invited Janice and John to go riding with her in her car. Again, life lesson, don't get in cars with strangers. Yeah, and it's so strange because when people think of like murderers or kidnappers or people that who commit crimes it's mostly men mm-hmm. and so you would never suspect you, a woman and you genu- generally like you generally go to trust the woman mm-hmm. but not this lunatic like no. she oh, i don't know right. so the three drove through the georgia countryside and during the drive judith contacted someone via cb radio with the name of night rider <laughs> which we already know that's her husband alvin I don't think John and Janice knew who it was at that point, but she told him that she had met some new friends and that they should meet up. So after they all meet up, the four split up. John went with Alvin and Janice went with Judith. The group, oh, no. Right. And the group decided to go try to find some moonshine just to liven up the evening a little bit. Um, I have some in my fridge. <laughs> I want some later. Shh, that's a secret. <laughs> um... Oh, so the group set off in the two separate vehicles, like we discussed. And during the ride, John needed to use the bathroom, so he asked Alvin to pull over, and he did. And while John was out of the car, Judith shot him. Then Judith and Alvin took Janice, who was restrained in Judith's car, with them and left John for dead near a back road in Catoosa County in northwest Georgia. However, John was not dead. Once he was sure they were gone, he got up and ran to the nearest road, flagged down a passing car, and went to the hospital. Wait, so I thought the the dude went with Alvin and the girl went with Judith. He did, but that thing they, they both stopped. When, oh, okay. when they both, when Alvin pulled over to let John go to the bathroom, I'm assuming they all stopped together. Um, so John was treated for his injuries and released, and. I read I read a couple articles and one of them I forget which article it was but I'll link it in the show notes but the article they interviewed John and he said literally if he had been a step to the left he would have died where the bullet would have gone had he like he was so close to dying had you know had the trajectory of the bullet been like an inch or two off he would have died so so where did she shoot him in the back in the back okay yeah um, and, like, meanwhile, his wife is in the other car. Fiance. Fiance is in the other car. Yeah, they and, like, took her and left him for dead. They thought he was dead. Whoa. Right. So, the next day, like I said, he was re- after he was released from the hospital, he went to the Rome Police Department to file a report. And as he's walking through the station, he heard detectives playing the tape 
of the recorded phone call we recently talked about about Lisa Ann Milliken's body and he stopped in his tracks and was like that's her that's the girl so that the shot girl me called the woman who called in the mm-hmm. tip about it was the judith Neely. oh my goodness mm-hmm. <laughs> I got him. so at that point detectives began interviewing john trying to get as much information as possible from him and he eventually picked judith and alvin out of a photo lineup but at this time janice was still missing and they hadn't found her yet so they didn't know if she was alive if she was dead where she was if she was still with them um so Georgia and Alabama authorities began a multi-state search trying to locate the Neelys and ascertain what happened to Janice Chapman if she was, like I said, nobody knew. Yeah. Um, so more than a week passed with no results, and a nationwide bulletin was issued for the Neelys. That's that bolo you were talking yes, about. Yes, that bolo. It's a little late. But. Right. So on October 14th, 1982, 11 days after John was shot and Janice was last seen, Investigators got a break in the case when they contacted authorities in Tennessee where the Neelys were rumored to have been. Um, and detectives learned that they were actually both, the Neelys were both in the Rutherford County Jail in Murfreesboro, Tennessee on check charges and forgeries. So they just got picked up in the process. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. nobody knows where Janice is anymore. Right. Like still. Right. So, detectives drove to Murfreesboro and searched the automobiles of Alvin and Judith Neely and the residence of Judith's mother, where the couple had allegedly been staying. The searches turned up the following items. They turned up guns, handcuffs, CB radios, motel receipts under several aliases, and the letters Judith had written to Alvin when she was in the YVC. Oh, jeez. However, there was no sign of Janice. They could not find her. They didn't know what happened to her. So investigators interviewed Judith first, who was very cold, you know, very matter-of-fact, and she showed no emotion. Um, but eventually she admitted that she and Alvin had picked up Janice and John, and she further admitted that she walked John into the woods, shot him in the back, and left him for dead. So she just came clean? Yeah, like it she was just me. came clean. No, that was given. Right. And she stated that she and Alvin brought Janice back to a hotel room in Rome, Georgia, you know, after they left John, um, where they murdered her as well. Judith shot Janice in the back, and as she was on the ground, quote, hollering, end quote, Judith went over to Janice and shot her two more times in the head. Oh, no. Right. Judith also confessed to murdering Lisa Ann Milliken. So, like, that was it. There was no, like, just came clean. Right. By yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. What a psychopath. Right. And she's pregnant, by the way, for her their third child at this point. Again, she's pregnant. So, the twins and then plus one. The twins were two years old oh. at this time. Yeah, so she's pregnant right now. Um, so, she admitted that she had picked Lisa up and they spent the night in a Scottsboro, Alabama motel where Alvin joined them. And she watched as her husband raped 13-year-old Lisa as many as four times throughout the night, right? And during the night, she assisted Alvin by beating Lisa and handcuffing her to the bed to prevent her escape. You know, I was going to say, like, how could a mother, a a, a woman who's had children, Mm -hmm. I don't have children, so, like, I'm only imagining here, Mm -hmm. but... A motherly, well, I'm not going to say she's motherly, but a woman who's had children could 
be so vile. Mm -hmm. But she also never had to parent her own children because they were taken from Mm -hmm. her. So she isn't really a mother. Right. So once the Neelys were done abusing Lisa, Judith took her to Little River Canyon outside Fort Payne, Alabama, where she injected Lisa with drain cleaner six times (gasps) in an attempt to kill her. And when that didn't work, Judith brought her out to the edge of the canyon and shot her in the back. And once Lisa was dead, um, Judith got on the ground and pushed her off the edge of the canyon, oh, which no. is what got her jeans full of blood. So oh, I'm Judith's thinking, jeans. right, and she head on the edge of the canyon, so I'm thinking that Judith's plan was to shoot her and she would just fall into the canyon. But, but she didn't. She fell the other way. Oh. So that's why Judith had to push her off and so she changed out of her bloody jeans and threw those over the edge of the canyon along with the syringes and that white rag that they discovered um so police then talked to Alvin who corroborated Judith's account and he also provided police with the location of Janice Chapman's body so this is the first time they're now like being told where she is yes so police found Janice's body exactly where Alvin said it would be and she had been shot three times, as Judith had admitted to. So Alvin admitted to raping both Lisa Ann Milliken and Janice Chapman, and he claimed that Judith was involved in the rapes, but there was never any evidence to prove that. Right. So, you know, and you asked me earlier who was kind of the mastermind. Most people think it was Judith. What? Right. They think she was the one orchestrating this, and... um. I watched an episode of Wicked Attraction that comes on the ID channel about this case, and Mm -hmm. it was titled Hearts of Darkness. And Catherine Ramsland, who's a very well-known forensic psychologist, if you saw her, you would probably recognize her because she's in, like, a lot of, you know, ID TV documentaries. Mm -hmm. I recognized her immediately. But she stated that she believes that separately, Judith likely would have went on to murder, but Alvin probably wouldn't, wouldn't have murdered um, and that she believes that he was heavily influenced by Judith. Yeah. Right. So, as we kind of already discussed, Alvin and Judith were arrested on October 14th, 1982, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And two days later, on October 16th, they were extradited to Alabama to face charges in the death of Lisa Ann Milliken. And faced with a three count indictment, which included abduction with intent to harm, abduction with intent to terrorize and sexually violate and murder, Judith applied for a youthful offender status in hopes of avoiding the death penalty. Now, I was like, what is this mess? What is youthful offender Uh status? I don't care that you were 18. What is that even? So I looked it up, and according to a legal site, hg.org, Alabama's youthful offender status program allows a defendant younger than 21 who is facing criminal charges to seek youthful offender status. Uh-uh. Now, being granted this status can mean that the individual receives a reduction in penalties, and it can also sometimes result in a person not acquiring a criminal record at all. No. And mm-hmm. they need to get rid of that law. Right. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. It shouldn't. I mean, you still did this horrible thing. At 18? No. No. Right. And I mean, I know sometimes there's a gray area depending mm-hmm. on if you're like close to turning 18 or the 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 level of violence that your crime is. Right. 
And this one was like, very hanged. This, hang- this is absurd. Like, right. Now, had Judith been awarded this status, the maximum penalty would have been three years. No. Yes, three years. <gasps> now, thankfully. For everything. Three yeah. years. Yes. Yes. Holy goodness. Thankfully, after considering her past criminal history, as well as the horrid details of Lisa's death, the court denied her request. Thank God. And thank goodness for that, because three years for torturing, raping, then brutally murdering a young girl is just mind-blowing to me like I can't even wrap my brain around that now I say raping Judith as far as we know there's no proof that Judith raped her but you still brought her to a hotel for your husband to rape her so yeah but like it's I'm not gonna get into that but it's probably hard for a female to prove DNA exactly like with a woman versus woman rape I mean it could have been sodomy and nobody knows about yeah I don't know so in March of 1983 Judith's trial, Judith goes on trial for the murder of Lisa Ann Milliken, and her trial lasted 16 days. Now, from everything that I read, Alvin was never charged in the death of Lisa Ann Milliken because investigators could never prove that he was present during her murder. But didn't he, like, confirm? I mean, I guess he could, she could have told him the details, but... Well, he confirmed, he told them where Janice's body was, not Lisa's. So... Judith's defense at trial was that she killed Milliken to keep her husband from beating her and that he forced her to do all these things and she's a battered wife and that she only did this for him that he would stop beating her. Now, you can't see me, but I'm rolling my eyes so hard they're going to pop out of my head. Wait, so she was claiming that Alvin was beating her and like it was his wishes? Right. Okay. Right. And... He was portrayed by Judith's defense as being, like, this giant man who, like, terrorized and brutalized his wife. But most people who encountered him had a really hard time believing that. And, look, I've seen pictures of this man. He looks creepy. I will give you that. He is a creep. I mean, he was in, like, romantically Into a 16-year-old. Yes. Right. No doubt. But he doesn't look like a wife beater to me. But, I mean, I guess I could be wrong, you know. Yeah. But... So, a jury found Judith guilty on all three counts by a vote of 10 jurors for life in prison and two jurors for the death penalty. Hallelujah. Right. So, the jury recommended that she serve a sentence of life imprisonment without parole, but a month after the jury returned their verdict and sentence recommendation, the judge rejected their recommended sentence and instead he imposed a death sentence for her. Good. And so at the age of 18, Judith became the youngest woman in America ever sentenced to death. What? Right. So. Yeah, so much for that youth offender status. Right. After her conviction in Alabama for the murder of Lisa Ann Milliken, Judith and Alvin, her husband, were sent to Georgia where they would face charges in the abduction and murder of Janice Chapman and the kidnapping and attempted murder of John Hancock. Now, because she didn't want to risk another death sentence, she cut a deal to testify against Alvin, I bet she her did. husband. I bet she did. Right, in exchange for the state dropping the charges for murder and attempted murder and allowing her to plead guilty to kidnapping. That's a pretty hard bargain. Like, right. Like, I mean, she's already got a death. I mean, I guess I can understand the logic behind it because she's already got a death on death row. She's yeah. already going to be a death row in Alabama, so. I mean, I guess allow her, allowing her to plead guilty to kidnapping. And I mean, forget the other two? Oh, right. That makes me so sick. Um, 
But I guess she was just trying to save herself. I don't know. Maybe she felt like she had nothing to lose. I guess she knows she can't die twice. <laughs> right. So, like, why not? Why not testify against her husband? Like, you already got God. Like, why yeah. not testify against her husband? So, um, so Alvin, in order to avoid a death sentence, he pled guilty to the kidnapping and murder of Janice Chapman, and he received two life sentences. And Judith received a life sentence for kidnapping. And she was returned to death row in Alabama. Wait, she's still got a baby in utero, right, at this I, point? I think so. Oh, Lord. Um, and I, I haven't really read too much about the third baby, but I'm assuming that that baby went to Alvin's mother as well, like right. the twins did. Mm-hmm. Um, so Alvin apparently went on to tell police that he and Judith had information regarding the murders of several other women in the states of Georgia and Alabama. But... Only the murders of Lisa and Janice were ever, you know, conclusively linked. Um, So, now, the story is going to get a little crazy. What? Yeah. It's been crazy, girl. And kind of bizarre. So, in May of 1994, the body of a young woman was found in a home in Gadsden, which is a small city in Alabama. Apparently, while Judith was incarcerated, she developed a relationship with this woman and they allegedly entered into a suicide pact. What? Yes. Girl, stop. <laughs> I cannot make this up. I feel so, like you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. So, the suicide pact was not discovered until the body of the young woman was found, along with notes and messages from Judith Neely. Um, investigators even found a cassette tape with recordings of the woman and Judith um, you know, describing their plans for their suicide pact and talking about what should be done with their bodies, with their remains, you know, once they completed this suicide pact. So once they discovered all this, the penitentiary was immediately notified and prison staff found Judith Neely in her cell bleeding. She had slit her wrists with the blade from a disposable razor. What? Mm-hmm. To, how did she get that? I don't know that. I haven't, I haven't read you shave, that. shave your legs in prison? That's a good question. I don't even shave my legs out of prison. <laughs> Let's be real. But I don't know. That's a good question. Neither here nor there. So police believe that the two women had never physically met, that they only corresponded through letters and phone like calls. Like fan mail? I guess, yeah. That's so weird. Um, so that's weird to me, but, you know, that's just, like I said, it's bizarre. Um, so Judah survived, but she later went on to escape death again. So, in January of 99, about 16 years after Judith was convicted, Alabama Governor Fob James commuted her death sentence to life in prison as he was about to leave office. What? Yes. Oh, he left his mess for somebody else? Right. And it gets better. No. He was... I can't do this. I can't. (laughs) I told you. It was Mm -hmm. crazy. So, he was unclear whether the sentence was to be life without parole or life with parole. Uh-uh. Yes, he did not specify. So, four years later in 2003, the Alabama legislature responded by passing a law that prohibits parole for any inmate whose death sentence was commuted to life. And apparently, a couple of places I read, that law was basically made for her. That law was basically made for Judith Neely because she was the only inmate that that would have applied to. Applied to, right. Wait, so he did he give any reason? He just like, yo, I'm out. Y'all could fix this tornado disaster that I just created. I don't know. He just commuted her life, her death sentence to life. Oh, Jesus. 
I knew something was wrong with Alabama, but go on. <laughs> Amen. So, Alabama law states that a person with a life sentence could be eligible for parole after serving 15 years. And since Judith had already served more than 15 years by the time her sentence was commuted, she sought parole. Was she granted? We'll get there. Oh, you can't let me, bro. <laughs> so, the appeals court reversed U.S. District Court Judge Keith Watkins' ruling that Neely's 2014 lawsuit challenging the state law Act 2003-300 was filed too late under the statute of limitations. And the appeals court said in its March 2018 opinion that the 2003 Act did not apply to Neely because the retroactivity clause went back to 1998 and she committed her crime in 1982. So, she was technically eligible for parole. Girl, stop. Right. So, she had a parole hearing Mm-mm. in May of 2018. Wait. She's still alive? Mm-hmm. I was expecting this. We almost said a bad word, but no, <laughs> she's still alive. So, at a parole hearing on May 23rd, 2018, um, an Alabama parole board denied her request in about a minute, 55 <laughs> seconds, to be yes. exact. As Loud they, and clear. As they should. Um, after pleas from Alabama Governor Kay Ivey, the three-member board also heard from the man who prosecuted Neely more than three and a half decades ago, um, Lisa Ann Milliken's family and the relatives of a Georgia woman, Janice Chapman, whom Neely also murdered. So, um, according to AP News, many of Lisa Milliken's family testified at Judith's parole hearing. Um, her, Lisa's brother, Calvin Milliken, told the board, quote, Judith Ann Neely is a very cruel, sick person and needs to do her punishment for killing, taking lives. End quote. Girl, if I was a family member, I'd be in there cutting up. Right? Oh, no. Y'all be putting me in handcuffs. Mm-hmm. Because I'd be acting up. Contempt of court. Yes. Um, after the hearing, Lisa Milliken's sister, Tina Milliken, called Judith, quote, the true essence of evil. End quote. Agreed. Read Cosign. 100%. Read Yes. Um, and Lisa's mother, Frankie Mason, said she had hoped Neely would be present at the hearing so that she could see her face when she was denied parole. However, Judith was not present at the parole hearing. I guess she knew. Girl, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. (laughs) If you file for a parole hearing and you don't show up, (laughs) denied. Like, you know. Right. Show your face. Right. So, Governor Ivey said in a statement that Neely, who was 53 at the time of her parole hearing, should never be paroled, saying, quote, not now and not ever. Her crimes include acts of unspeakable brutality, and her character includes a disturbing tendency to manipulate others towards her own violent ends, end quote. Again, agreed. Yeah, like, I like this governor better. Right. So, apparently, Judith Neely had told the parole board that she wanted to waive consideration now but leave open the option for parole later. Mm-mm. Nope. Sight denied. Right. Quote, saying, quote, Although I am grateful for the opportunity to demonstrate how much God has changed my heart and life over the past 36 years, I know that now is not the right time. End quote. <gasps> Neely said in a letter that was reported by AL.com, which I'm assuming is like Alabama.com, but I'm not really sure. Wait. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. I hate when people try to use God. I hate it. This heifer don't have no heart. (laughs) She talking about it changed my heart and my life. Mm -mm. You you was not born with a heart. (laughs) Right. 
Um, she went on to say, quote, in order to spare the Milliken family the pain and trauma of having to attend the hearing, I have agreed to waive my right to be considered for parole at this time. I will continue to pray daily for God's forgiveness and for peace for the Milliken family, end quote. How is she going to save them or spare them the pain and trauma of another hearing that she didn't even go to? Right. Right. I'm hot, y'all. I'm hot. I mean, you could have you could have saved them the pain and trauma by not murdering their daughter, but you know. <laughs> Hello. Um. So Judith Neely will not be eligible for parole again in for another four years. Um. So she's eligible again in 2023. However, even if she is granted parole, which I feel like is very likely that she won't be. Girl, let me write that governor a letter. Right. I don't even live in Alabama. <laughs> She'll be transferred. So even if she is granted parole from Alabama, she'll be transferred to Georgia to, Georgia to, to serve out her life sentence yeah. there. Right. So Got it. right now, she's currently serving out her life sentence in Alabama. So like death is no longer on the table for no. her. No, no, they commuted it to life, life in prison. Girl, if I catch her on the street, <laughs> you're not gonna catch her on the street because she's in I'm prison. Just if she gets she out, gets, yeah, she gets double parole. Y'all, Amanda's gonna drive <laughs> to Alabama. <laughs> Visit someone in prison. She old now. <laughs> um, so Judith's husband, Alvin Neely, is dead. He died on October twenty first, two thousand five, at the Oconee Regional Medical Center in Georgia from complications while undergoing surgery when he was fifty two years old. So he's been dead for about fourteen years now. Almost fourteen years. So what kind um, of surgery he needed. I, I don't know. Say. I don't know. It didn't say. I looked. Man, but, I'm so nosy. <laughs> yeah. I guess they have to give him medical care. Like I don't know. laws or whatever. Right. I don't they know. can't say. Yeah, I guess they can't withhold medical care from um from prisoners, even though they are prisoners. But you know. That was such a wild episode. Yeah. Yep. So <sighs> Well folks, that's the case of Alvin and Judith Neely. Thank you for listening to Homeside Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast, follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.